Welcome to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. I'm your host, Timmy G, providing your weekly dose of insight and inspiration for mental and emotional well-being. Are you ready for your weekly brain bath? Let's go. Mental health news from around the globe. And this from CBC News. Singer Alan Doyle and his partners in a new health foundation want the public to donate some small change in order to help make big changes in mental health care. Doyle has partnered with St. John's surgeon Andrew Fury and businessman Brendan Paddock to launch the A Dollar a Day Foundation, which will help raise funds for frontline organizations across Canada. The idea is quite simple. Donors can sign up online and choose to donate monthly, quarterly, or annually. The foundation then directs the money to organizations delivering mental health services in local communities. We're trying to revolutionize the way people give, Doyle said at an event at the Rooms in St. John's. The founders acknowledge the fact that many people simply don't have the time or money to attend flashy galas, auctions, or other fundraising events. It sounds oversimplified, I know, but that's sort of how I think about everything he said. Have you got a buck? That's the only question you need to answer. Regional investment. So the Dollar a Day Foundation has partnered with the Canadian Mental Health Association to choose the first four programs that will benefit from their fundraising efforts. This includes Thrive Community Youth Network in St. John's, the Canadian Mental Health Association's Living Life to the Full campaign in Ontario, the Mental Health Commission of Canada's Headstrong Program in Calgary, and the Salvation Army's Harbor Light Program in Vancouver. According to Doyle, mental health and addictions issues are borderless, and that's why they've decided to establish a nationwide focus. One of the things we can do to help people from Newfoundland and Labrador is to fund a national cause like this, he said. There's uh, people all over the country that need as much as help as they do in our own backyard. So that organization, as I said, is called A Dollar a Day. It's based in St. John's with a focus to benefit mental health and addictions programs all across Canada. You are listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. And from the Londoner.ca, insight leads to understanding. That's a philosophy behind a four-year project by the Canadian Mental Health Association in Middlesex, which culminated January 31st with the launch of a book that seeks to change how people view others struggling with mental illness. The stories are those of CMHA Middlesex clients, said Holly Ballantyne, staff lead. However, the stories unravel organically, and so they're not restricted to the London area alone. Some have shared a journey which began in another part of the country, or which concluded in another part of the province, but they were or are active clients uh, when interviewed for the book. Formally launched on Bell Let's Talk Day, an annual social media awareness and fundraising campaign which raised nearly $7 million this year, the 124-page paperback entitled This Does Not Define Me features the personal stories of clients who range in age from 18 to 80, as well as three published posthumously. 
This does not define me allows incomparable insight into another individual's state of depression, mania, schizophrenia, obsessive compulsive disorder, bipolar, eating disorders, and suicidality, Ballantyne said. For many, a trip through hell and back. These are people, not cases. Survivors, not victims. Each individual is different. How they step up to live purposeful lives and maintain equilibrium on their own terms. These are people speaking out for the first time in their own words, battling against rampant discrimination and indifference toward understanding and acceptance. Among their stories, we have uh, Beginning Again by David Headington, which details the friction between denial and acceptance of change. Ultimately, there's the realization that with acceptance comes the space for victory. Also included a piece called Finding Self-Acceptance by Alan Blankhorn, powerfully demonstrates the collapsing of personal fears built on a foundation of stigma or even prejudice. Foundation uh, passed down ancestrally, which Alan bulldozes through and builds a new, more realistic understanding of what it means to have mental health issues. Also included a change of view by Jeff Kuch, traces the detours and travels the curves faced as he builds understanding about what it means to deal with one's own mental health. And also a difference experience by Christine Elliott, which shines a light on the shock of anyone being told they have a severe mental illness. However, it will also show how recovery is also possible, always possible, and can come. Christine's is a journey of many insights, uh, said Ballantyne. The book project began in 2014 when the idea was presented to people involved with CMHA. Clients formulated a vision which led to an oral history model in which interview questions were posed and subjects were recorded in the autumn of 2014 into the spring of 2015. The interviews were then transcribed and the manuscript developed from the verbatim words. This process was triggering at times and was not easy to do, Ballantyne said. Oral history is different than traditional and that the rhetoric is reflective of speech and of the individual's tone. It is comparable to a puzzle of many small pieces that must be connected to flush out the true picture. Common themes emerge through the stories. Mental health issue recovery is always doable and to be expected. No one will be ill forever if they are able to ride the waves of suffering, Valentine said. I always think of it as every storm runs out of rain. The stories all demonstrate this fact. Recovery is possible, but it is a journey, not a destination. These stories bust through many prejudices and demonstrate beautifully how limiting both stigma and prejudice can be, and what a profound barrier it is to recovery. All mental health issues are experienced uniquely, but they also have a common connection that allow individuals to recognize that they are not alone, that there are people out there who understand what they are experiencing. The hope is that the book will encourage others to tell their stories and to mitigate stigmas held by the public. Uh, the book, This Does Not Define Me, is available on Amazon. And this from City Metric, an article written by Layla McKay, who's the director of the Center for Urban Design and Mental Health. Lessons in Building for Mental Health from Tokyo and Hong Kong. 
Standing in the right place, deep within the density of tower blocks and the throng of crowds and the neon glow of kanji, is a snapshot of humanity's future. We could be on the set of Blade Runner. But sci-fi films are not the only way to envision our overcrowded, hyper-urban future. Asian megacities offer a present-day glimpse of what the world's soaring population and rising urbanization could mean for how well we live. By doing so, these cities also hold clues about how to future-proof our sanity. As more people flock to cities, we need solutions that balance urban density with livability. Hong Kong and Tokyo are both super-aging cities known for their tall buildings, long working hours, efficient underground trains, and tiny living spaces. In both cities, stress and loneliness are common complaints. Suicide is not uncommon, and at least one in five people experience a serious mental illness in their lifetime. Like anywhere, many factors mediate these risks. Genetics, upbringing, employment, and certain physical illnesses. But there's one more factor whose impact is only now emerging as a key determinant of mental health, the built environment. Modifying the settings where we live, work, and play is not just the next big public health opportunity. It is a key to the resilience that companies, cities, and countries seek for their populations. The built environment affects mental health in two important ways. First, by overstimulation. Cities can provide social and cultural stimulation that surpasses that of rural settings. Everything we see in cities is designed to make us think, feel, or act in certain ways. Many of us left our close relationships behind to move to the city, and instead of someone to confide in, every day we encounter tens of thousands of someones. All of this can result in overload, an urge to retreat from this assault on our senses. Secondly, cities deplete the very factors that strengthen our mental health and build resilience, such as access to green, natural spaces, regular physical activity, and positive social interaction. As the population urbanizes, these challenges risk escalating to the detriment of society's mental health and well-being. This hyper-urban future is currently the present in many of Asia's denser cities. Examining how these cities are adapting uncovers clues about our upcoming challenges and emerging solutions. Growing density and demand for space drives up house prices, prices unsustainably. In the quest for affordable housing solutions, some people in Hong Kong have had to live in what's called cage homes, tiny caged living spaces within subdivided apartments. And through the challenges of this very constrained living, it is becoming clear that affordability and quality of life can be improved through a return to social communal facilities, from shared kitchens to shared study spaces. Developments are encroaching on public open space, so in addition to incentivizing developers to provide dedicated public spaces, Hong Kong's population is improvising, appropriating different spaces for different uses at different times. University plazas for older people to ex uh, exercise at dawn before the students swarm in, for example. Or the grounds of a major bank for migrant domestic workers to socialize on weekends when the office staff go home. And even corners of air-conditioned office lobbies have become informal day centers for older people. Meanwhile, in Tokyo, 
Streets are being flexed in public space as public spaces. Vehicle traffic is encouraged to stick to the bigger roads, and in many places, the smaller network of roads inside these grids are given over largely to roadside plants, pedestrians, and mothers riding special bicycles with several children strapped aboard, stopping to chat outside small and welcoming shops. Looking at hyper-dense Asian cities also makes it clear that the future could be public transport, the key to which is seamless integration with safe and convenient pedestrian and bike links between stations and destinations. In Tokyo, hills are tackled with electric bicycles. In Hong Kong, with free public outdoor escalators. In both cities, residents benefit from the regular physical activity that is naturally integrated into their daily routines. Nature is good for our mental health, but dense development makes access to greenery challenging. Tokyo and Hong Kong both incentivize developers with tax credits to green their buildings and invest in urban parks within new developments. But recognizing the land use challenges, both cities also prioritize the provision of cheap, convenient public transport access to large swaths of greenery just outside the city. Whether they call it forest bathing, such as in Tokyo, or simply hiking, as in Hong Kong, it is clear that to fully reap the mental health benefits of nature, we need both urban nature that people can access in the course of their daily routines and immersive nature that delivers a bigger respite from the city. What these solutions have in common is the design of settings that facilitate positive social interactions within dense neighborhoods, enabling participation of people of all ages in shared spaces. These uses of space enable residents to physically see each other. In doing so, they build their social capital and a sense of community belonging. This is incredibly protective for mental health. If we look to Hong Kong and Tokyo for clues to our future, it becomes clear that while some parts of our future cities might look like Blade Runner on the surface, underneath we may find a dense collection of overlapping villages. That from Layla McKay, Director of Center for, the, uh, Center for Urban Design and Mental Health in City Metric. You are listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web CFRC.ca. Let's get personal. Our talk feature interview. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Megan Van Massenhoven. She's Outreach Manager for an organization called Good to Talk. Megan, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So, what is Good to Talk, and what are the circumstances uh, surrounding its inception? So, Good to Talk is a student helpline. Um, So, it's a number that any university or college student in Ontario can call 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Uh, and they can speak with a professional counselor, get information about services on or off campus. It's completely anonymous, uh, completely free. Okay. And did did some particular situation happen? I understand this started back in 2013, or was it 2014? 
Yeah, it started in 2013. So some of the work for developing the helpline came about in the two or three years prior to that. Um, but basically, it's part of Ontario's larger mental health and addiction strategy. So making sure that uh, people in the province of Ontario have the supports they need and can access mental health services. And part of that strategy specifically outlines the need for mental health services and supports on campuses, um, seeing that post-secondary students are often, you know, going through this transition from high school to university, maybe they're living on their own for the first time, and they're dealing with a lot of new independence uh, and a lot of new um, different commitments on their schedule and dealing with the stress of being a student. So they just really saw that this was a very uh, high-needs group uh, age group um, and developed the helpline to sort of help them get support in the moment and access other services. Okay. And you recently conducted a survey. Was this Is this the first survey of its kind based on the work that Good to Talk does? Yeah, it's the first survey uh, Good to Talk has ever done to really better understand uh, the challenges students are facing. So there might be other student mental health or health surveys done by universities or colleges themselves, um, but this was our opportunity to understand what students uh, deal with and where they go when they need help. Okay, and I'm excited to hear the results because this issue is so critical and it's not going away anytime soon, so what did you, what did you find? So we found that uh, students listed their five biggest stressors as academics, uh, career, body image, finances, and dealing with relationships. So that's something that, based on what we've seen students call about on the helpline for the last few years, that's also pretty in line with what we already knew, but it just confirmed to us that these are really important uh, topics and issues that are uh, weighing on students sometimes. Um, we also found as well that a lot of students, 72% um, of Ontario students, told us that they would consider or try to manage an issue themselves. Um, so we asked them, when you're dealing with some of these stressors, uh, what might you do? And a lot of them did say that, you know, they try and manage it on their own, um, which is really interesting for us uh, to know that maybe that could be because, you know, they want to be independent, um, they want to think that they can handle something by themselves, or maybe they just don't know that there are options and services available to support them with whatever they're dealing with. Okay. And with that 72% number of, of students wanting to try to deal with things on their own, um, I guess, how do you as an organization, when callers are calling in, how, how are you able to, do you, do you get a sense from them when they call in that, that I guess what I'm trying to ask is how, how do you break down the impetus behind that for each person. If it's somebody who doesn't doesn't have any skills and that's why they're dealing with it on their own, like you said, or do you do you drill down, you know, during a phone call, if you will, or or, or questioning to try to get at the root of that? Yeah, I think moving forward, we we want to aim to better understand why that is, um, the motivation behind it, because as you mentioned, it would potentially be different for every person. Uh, one of the things we know, maybe more anecdotally, we do a lot of outreach on campuses, um, and initially we were surprised by how often students asked us if it was okay to call if it's just school stress or if it's just a minor issue. And so we kind of realized that a lot of people 
maybe they associate the term helpline with crisis or distress line exclusively. Um, and so we really tried to make sure that when we market to students and when we go out and do events and tell them about the helpline, that we reiterate as much as possible that if it's something you're dealing with, it is a big deal and we're there to help with it. There's no, um, you know, we don't ask people what they're dealing with and then say, oh, that's too small, we're not going to help you. Um, we're really there for absolutely anything. We get, you know, calls that relate to crisis and distress, but we also get lots of people who call just to talk about a struggle they're having with their roommate um, and that they're not sure what to do. So it really is uh, any issue you're dealing with, big or small, we're there to support you with. I think that's wonderful because a lot of situations in life that come up for students or even adults there are situations that maybe start small and if we don't feel that we can ask for help or we don't have a, a reliable source for seeking help, we maybe just get into the habit of continuously, oh, I'll just deal with this on my own and then we don't really effectively deal with it and then it there's residual stuff there and it builds and then it becomes a crisis. So I think it's great that you're, it's it's open to kind of any situation and you're willing to be there to lend an ear and provide some guidance. That's great. Yeah, and as I mentioned, we do, of course, uh, speak with students and are always there to support students dealing with crisis or distress um, or something like suicide, but ideally we'd love to hear from them before that and know that we can kind of help them uh, mitigate those stressors before they become crisis situations. Okay. And how were you, if I can ask, how were you able to, um, how did you disseminate the survey? How were you able to go about conducting it and collecting your results? So I mentioned earlier, you know, we do have a couple of years of data from the helpline itself. So we know what students are calling about. We have a bit of information on demographics like uh, their age or where in the province they're located. Um, but what we really wanted to get at was both the students who maybe have called us, but also those who don't or don't know about us. Um, so we used a market research agency um, who recruited an online uh, panel of Ontario students aged 17 to 30 um, and processed all that data for us. So they made sure um, that we were getting kind of uh, the number of responses we were looking for and that they fell within that specific population. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Any other results or, uh, from the survey that you think are, are pertinent to what we discuss here uh, on talk and, and uh, the campus environment in general? I think one of the other things we really wanted to understand was not just what students themselves are dealing with, but what they see in their campus communities. So do they also see that their friends are having issues uh, or negative experiences relating to these uh, stressful issues they've identified? So we found that three out of four students had a close friend who experienced at least one of the issues we already mentioned. Okay. Um, and of that group, 45% of them responded that they didn't really know what to do or how to help their friend in that moment. And that's really interesting for us because, one, it shows that um, they see their friends dealing with similar issues uh, and that they might not know how to help them. And so... Uh, Though we often get students who call us because they have an issue they're dealing with, they want to talk to a counselor, because we can also tell them about services on and off campus, we can also be a helpful resource to help someone support their friend going through a challenge. If they don't know what services are available on campus, they could give us a call and we could let them know, and then they could share that information as well. Okay. And does your data um, indicate whether males or females are accessing your service 
uh, in greater numbers? Or mm-hmm. So what we have seen pretty consistently on the Good to Talk helpline for the last few years is roughly uh, about 70% of our callers are female, about 30% are male. Um, there's a small proportion that either don't tell us their gender um, or identify as gender fluid. Um, but for the most part, it's about that 70-30 split, which, you know, ideally we would love to see it closer to a 50-50, but we also know from other helplines and other youth services that um, often the proportion of females might even be higher than that. So that kind of leads us to think that potentially um, that we'd love to have them reach out more that uh, university and college students uh, who are male might actually be maybe a little bit more open to calling a service like Good to Talk than some of their high school or elementary school counterparts. Okay, okay. And um, when I started the this show talk in September, I featured an article on the first show that was from, I think it was May of last year, from the Toronto Star just talking about how the demand for youth mental health services on in college and university campuses had skyrocketed and, you know, organi- uh, organizations, institutions were, were scrambling to hire more staff to keep up with the demand. From your vantage point, the work that you guys do and having such a, an ear to the ground on, you know, hearing from students directly, why do you think this is all, why do you think this, this uh, increase has, has blown up in the way that it has at this time in our culture and history, if you will, that's kind of a big question, but what, what, what mm-hmm. few things could you share on that angle? So I think we see that students today who call us often are kind of presenting more than one uh, issue on their plate. It's usually two or three, even four or five things that they're dealing with, um, and the combination of those things can be really stressful. So I think there's a lot of pressures on students. Um, they're dealing with a lot of newfound independence. Um, there's new uh, relationships they're navigating, both in person and also online. Things like social media um, can have an impact on the way they perceive their own success as well. Um, and so I think really, you know, seeing this kind of new, um, being a young person today and dealing with this can be a lot. Uh, so that is definitely something that is difficult and maybe has increased over the years. I also think we can see maybe more and more while there's still lots of stigma out there about talking about mental health and accessing mental health services, it is becoming a bit louder of a conversation. Um, So potentially that could actually be encouraging to young people um, that they're seeing it maybe a little bit more, hearing it discussed a little bit more and maybe a little bit more cognizant of their own mental health maybe a bit more willing to access services. So on one hand, while we do see this demand has really gone up and it's very concerning, we also don't want to discourage people um, from reaching out. It's also kind of a good thing to us to see that more and more people are calling us because hopefully it means that they're getting the help they need um, before something becomes a massive issue. Yeah, that's key. I, I feature a lot of articles on the show as well that that look at the business world and corporate life and just employees and stuff and the different types of themes and trends in the workplace. And to, to me, it would seem that, you know, if we're not able to support our young people at the, the university college level to effectively deal with and move through some of the stuff that they're dealing with and, and develop those skill sets that maybe they're not, they're not used to being in the situation that they're in, like you say, I mean, starting a new job and the pressures of all that and 
buying a home and being an adult, all the stuff that comes with that as well. I mean, a lot of these things can continue as we as we get older. So I think that I mean the work that you guys are are doing and the service that you're offering is is critical to to minimize the impact that it has on people as they move on to the next stage of their life. Really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. And I think also our services are really complementary to what does exist on campus. Um, you know, it's a lot of pressure to try and provide counseling support or different mental health services for every student at a a very large university or even a small one. Um, And we also know different people might need different types of support. Maybe it's just in the moment having someone to talk to is enough to mitigate uh, what they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Maybe they do need something more ongoing. So I think, you know, we hear a lot from campus staff that they love good to talk and it really almost takes the pressure off of them to know that when a student leaves their office, they can say, you know, if you have an issue, um, if you feel really panicked or anxious or concerned and it's three in the morning, here's someone you can talk to at any time of day. Yeah, I could see how that would be kind of the next line of, of defense to, um, and I mean, a lot of people too, when they're feeling down or they're just dealing with something, maybe they don't feel like leaving their their place, their apartment, to go somewhere. Maybe the weather's not very favorable, and, and being able to call a hotline is so convenient. So, um, I mean, I know you guys aren't a, a, a parenting organization per se, but but this kind of comes up in my head just listening to our guest yesterday. You know, you know, very articulate young lady, very smart, does well in life, comes from a good family, and yet she just when when this came up for her, and she did go to a counselor. Um, or, or I think it was a peer support uh, worker on on Queens campus, who she found very helpful and affirming that you know you're not you're not losing it. This is normal. Everything that you're going through is okay. We'll help you work through this. And yet she still felt this barrier to be able to tell her parents because she didn't want to have them think that something was wrong with her. I, again, maybe this isn't a fair question because it's not your your area, but. I think it would be great if you could just speak to kind of what advice parents could kind of glean from all the different, you know, it's a different culture, it's a different climate now, maybe for somebody that's in university than than, than their parents at, at, at their age. So what do you think parents, if somebody, if a parent's listening right now, would kind of be a good few things to just say just to kind of smooth that situation for everybody that's involved? Yeah, that's a really uh, good point, and I think, you know, parents really, well, not being a parent myself, but I think for a lot of parents when their child maybe goes off to college or university, they do really want them to succeed um, and be independent, but again, still want to be there for them. So I think it is really helpful for parents to be aware of some services like good to talk or even what's available on campus um, to remind their children that those are there and that it is totally okay to use those services and that that's why they're available. Um, I think something that's been really interesting for me, again, kind of anecdotally, is if I'm on campus um, promoting the helpline and I have, like, faculty people come up and ask about it, I'm always thinking, oh, great, this is a chance to let them know about this service so they can share with their students. And, like, at least 50% of the time they say, oh, this is really great, you know, my child is at this college or a different university, um, and I'm really glad to know of something that can support them. And so that's really been interesting for me to see that, you know, I think the parents really are um, 
aware of the pressures, hopefully, mm-hmm. um, and interested in learning about what they can share um, to sort of encourage the idea that it's okay to reach out, even if it's not to the parent themselves, that whoever you want to talk to, just talking to someone is good enough, even if it's not me. Gotcha. Okay. I found it interesting listening to our guest yesterday when she said, you know, once that barrier kind of came down, once she told her parents and there was the first few days, she lives at home and the first few days after telling them they were, you know, they didn't understand and she was having, she didn't really know how to, you know, explain her feelings and really capture what she's been feeling. And so there was this disconnect between them. Eventually, after a few more conversations that the the barrier came down and they were able to really have a, a good conversation about it. And then really it became kind of a a family affair in the sense that, you know, her and her mom went to chapters and grabbed a few books about anxiety and just taking it together as a kind of a team, if you will, to learn about this and learn about some of the sources of it and what we can do to, to work on it. And I thought that was great. Yeah, that's a really, a really nice positive story. And it's very dependent too on that, individual parents, you know, own experiences um, and, like, culturally what they've been encouraged to talk about or not talk about in their lives. So I think it's a really great opportunity for, you know, young people and their parents to get to know each other more and, and be open and on about, honest about what they're dealing with. Megan, do you think there's anything else while we've got you on the line today that you'd like to share with our listeners? I think we've covered a lot of it. Um, maybe just our number, which is uh, Good Start, can be reached at one eight six six nine two five five four five four, or you can dial two one one and ask for Good to Talk. That's great. Maybe we'd have you back uh, in the future. Would you be willing to come on again? Yeah, that'd be lovely. It's been great talking to you. Okay, thank you so much, Megan. Thanks. You are listening to Talk on CFRC one one point nine FM, and on the web CFRC dot CA. It's now time for Music and the Mind, where we spotlight addiction, recovery, and the search for the natural high. Today's music feature is actually part book review, as I've been promising for a few weeks. Finished off with a few songs that will highlight some of the themes that I will share as teased out of this book. So the book, Stand Firm, Resisting the Self-Improvement Craze by uh, Danish philosopher and psychologist Sven Brinkman. On page three in the introduction, starts with a compelling idea. And I think it's crucial to our understanding of where we're at today in history and with the rising, staggering numbers of not only university and college students dealing with anxiety and depression, but adults in the workplace, fill in the blank. It's broad and it's deep. Mr. Brinkman says, it is tempting to interpret modern epidemics of depression and burnout as the individual's response to the unbearable nature of constant acceleration. So I want you to think about that for a minute and think about the areas of your own life 
where you feel like you're on this treadmill and it's continuously, there's a programmer of that treadmill and it's not you. It's somebody else who is increasing the speed, the cadence of that treadmill. And you're being asked to move faster and faster. And maybe when you started out on that treadmill, you had an endless supply of water, just in case you got dehydrated. Maybe you had some snacks along the side. Uh, Maybe you could stop at certain points and take a rest. And now it seems increasingly in society, we're continuously being, whether it's in the workplace, high-pressure jobs, whether it's a nonprofit organization or a corporate sales environment, I see it happening across the board where we're being asked to do more and more with less and less. So you're running on this treadmill. There's a programmer that's increasing the track speed. And little by little over time, your water reserves are slowly being uh, lowered and then maybe taken away. The snacks that you need to sustain yourself for this run are slowly dwindling away. You're maybe not allowed to take the same number of breaks as previously. And this constant acceleration, the demands that we are putting on the individual person in society today to keep up, to be successful, to do more with less. Mr. Brinkman has written this book not as an answer, but certainly as a reflective piece with some strong suggestions on how we can counteract this treadmill that a lot of us are stuck on. Whether we want to admit it or not, we may not see that we're stuck on a treadmill today. It's only when we hit a crisis in our life that we often look back and say, oh yeah, I was stuck on that treadmill you know, way back in time and I just thought I was enjoying what I was doing because I was making good money or I was, you know, I had certain status or social esteem, whatever you want to call it. And yet it was never sustainable from the beginning. But sometimes we deceive ourselves. We don't want to see what needs to be seen because we like the certain elements of the equation that we're being provided with. And yet, like I said, it's not sustainable. So Mr. Brinkman breaks the book down. It's a short book. It's a quick, easy read. After the introduction, which is titled uh, Life in the Fast Lane, which is certainly appropriate, chapter one is called Cut Out the Navel Gazing. So he argues that more and more today with the self-improvement craze, that yes, it's important to get help when we need it, but it, uh, it, it has also ventured into this area of success where we are on this relentless pursuit and all and, and continuously looking inward, which effectively disconnects us from society or social interactions. And we're spending too much time looking and thinking about ourselves and not enough time giving and thinking to our communities, getting involved with the lives of other people. And we know that I think most of us know that simply from you do a nice gesture for somebody or donate to a nice cause or go to a fundraiser or 
walk an elderly lady across the street, whatever it may be, that those gestures make us feel really good about being a human being. And it costs us nothing. And it's an outward focus on others. So he suggests we need to start to mitigate some of that obsessiveness with always looking inward because we get stuck inside of ourselves. We have to find a balance between setting boundaries that are workable for me in my own life and yet not to the point that now I'm this narcissistic pursuer of success at all costs and, and no longer reaching out to help my fellow man, fellow woman, fellow child. Chapter two, he looks at focusing on the negative in your life. Now, this is interesting because the pop psychology movement is really these days about, you know, if you have negative thoughts, you do whatever means strategies to change your negative thoughts to positive thoughts. But he borrows from the Stoics, and he goes into a greater explanation at the back of the book about Stoicism and the Greeks and the Romans and some of the philosophers at that time and, and how important it was at that time in history and their culture to focus on the negative. And what he means is, this doesn't mean sitting and, and stewing and drilling down into the, the bad things in your life. It's actually reflecting on the good things in your life, the, th the good things that exist today in a way that makes you think, you know, what would happen if I lost these things? So it's like focusing on the, the negative of what would happen if, I if these things were taken from me? could be children, it could be a, you know, a good job, it could be your warm house, food, clothing, all of these things. So in that sense, we're compelled to be grateful for what we have today, right now, instead of this constant pursuit to feel like we're not enough, we don't have enough, and we have to be pursuing more. When we focus on the negative, meaning what would happen if we lost the great things that are around us today? How, how bad would that feel? So again, it just facilitates gratitude in our lives. Chapter three looks at putting on your no hat. So again, today, there's lots of books out there that are written, you know, say yes to life. Get out there, just do it. And he's saying that we need to exercise a greater level of caution when it comes to yes, 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 because we're signing up for so many different things across the sphere of our life, and we're overscheduled. So using discernment to exercise a healthy level of no is actually a very healthy thing. Now, this, would, this was challenging when I first read it. Suppress your feelings. Um... Again, we're, we're taught in many ways today to feel everything you're feeling and express everything you're feeling, and that's, that's a good thing. And I'm giving you snapshots of each chapter, so there's much more explanation for this, and I suggest you get the book and read it for yourself so you can get into it a little bit deeper. But suppressing your feelings can actually be a good thing if you're in a situation, maybe at work or in a relationship where, and I'll tell you a quick aside to this, I remember my grandmother... She was in her late 80s, and I asked her at a wedding once. She passed away a few years after that, but I said, you know, what's some wisdom that you could share with me? Um, 
given what you've learned throughout your own life. And she said, learn to, one of the things she said was learn to keep your mouth shut. And that, that has served me so well throughout my life because, I mean, our emotions, if we're feeling something strong emotionally, whether it's anger or frustration, sadness, that, the power of that emotional charge is enough to drive our words where we're saying something in response to what we're feeling to counteract something in the outer world to try to mitigate our feelings or enact justice or what have you in any given circumstance. And learning to keep our mouths shut is really, Brinkman is saying, learning to suppress some feelings that are not helpful in certain situations. So if you're in a work meeting and you're seeing something that you don't disagree with and you fly off the handle in anger, it might not be the most appropriate time to do that if it's going to put your job at risk and you have no money to pay the, pay the bills now. So it's looking at, again, using discernment, when is it appropriate for me to suppress my feelings and when are, is it appropriate for me to express my feelings? Number five, and I, I'm, I'm a certified coach and I do coaching work with people. So I didn't love this chapter, but I get where he's coming from. The title of the chapter is called Sack Your Coach. So really, what he's saying is, is that, and I mean, he's a psychologist and a philosopher, so he certainly can appreciate the value of having people in your life that are part of your support system and, and, and bring value to making you feel good and feel better and work through your problems and so forth, which is what I do as a coach. But he's also saying that the self-help craze has proliferated in such a way that now we have, you know, individually we in our Rolodex, we have a coach, a trainer, a, a, a therapist, um, all these different things that we've surrounded ourselves with. And in the beginning, it may have been something where it was helpful, but now we've become so dependent on it that we don't take a step without consulting our Rolodex of advisors to know what move to make in our lives. And he's saying we need to we need to tone down um, maybe the uh, the volume and the frequency. And certainly I can say that at certain points in our lives, when we're going through a difficult time, maybe we need more supports. And when we're not going through a difficult time, maybe we can pare down a little bit and, you, and, and activate less support. So it's not like we're so dependent on all of these different things all the time. But again, it's a personal choice. You've got to gauge in your own life what is going to be helpful for you at any given time. But he's saying the industry as a whole, self-help industry as a whole, it's trendy, trendy, it's hip to have all these different advisors in our lives. And sometimes it's just overwhelming. Chapter six, he says, you know, read a novel, read something that's fiction or, or some type of literature that compels you to think and not just a self-help book that forces, not forces, but compels you to do, 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 always be on the go, always setting goals, always feeding into that culture of acceleration that's in many ways not sustainable. It's a great little book, and I want to play some songs now that kind of flesh out in a musical sense some of the ideas in this book Ideas around slowing down, taking time, 
not feeding into this culture of acceleration. If you're stuck on a treadmill and there's somebody who's controlling the power source and you're being forced to run faster and your water's being taken away and your snacks are being taken away and you're not allowed to take a break, I mean, take a good hard look at how long you are willing to commit to that. Here is U2 with Moment of Surrender, a song about an addict coming to terms with his circumstances. This song is described by producer and musician Brian Eno as the most magical experience I've ever had in the studio.
CFRC 101.9 FM, CFRC.ca. That was you too with Moment of Surrender. It's not if I believe in love, but if love believes in me. If you are begging to get back to your heart, to the rhythm of your soul, if you're dealing with an addiction issue, a mental health issue, if you're feeling stressed or anxious, or if you just need somebody to connect with, a genuine person who is interested in what you have to say, please call the helpline at Good to Talk, number 1-866-925-5454. That is 1-866-925-5454. Confidential helpline at Good to Talk, open 24-7, 365 days a year. If you're in a rough spot right now today, or you know somebody who is, is, please pass along that number so that they can make that call and connect with somebody who's genuinely interested in listening to what they have to say. Mindwell this week, the support group that I facilitate every Thursday night, is actually going to be a field trip. We are going to go to Holy Cross School, high school, uh, Dr. Buchanan, who's a clinical psychologist with the Maple Family Health Team and an uh, associate professor and clinical supervisor at Queen's University, is going to be speaking on the topic, Parenting Youth in a Time of Transition, How to Help Prepare uh, Young People for Managing Life Stress. So the group that I facilitate, the support group, Mindwell, Thursday evenings, is not going to be happening at 1111 Taylor Kid Boulevard. We're actually going to be meeting at Holy Cross High School at 7 p.m. in the lobby and listening to what Dr. Buchanan has to say uh, on the in the areas of mental health and well-being for uh, youth and uh, helping them to manage life stress. So if you want to check that out and join us, please meet us at Holy Cross School Thursday, February 8th at 7 p.m. This has been another edition of Talk with Timmy G on CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. If you have any questions or feedback or would like to be featured on the show, please email me at info at timothydgoche.com. That's info at timothydgauther.com. Every Thursday from 7 to 8.30, I facilitate a free drop-in group called MindWell. It's a support group for anybody dealing with burnout, stress, anxiety, Again, that's every Thursday from 7 to 8.30. The address, 1111 Taylor Kid Boulevard at St. Paul the Apostle. Till next week, be smart, be safe.